So I found an answer to a question we've had for like at least the last three months. What's the point of all of this? <laughs> oh, okay. Gestures well, I, vaguely to the universe. <laughs> I don't have that answer. Sorry, I should have been more specific. So listeners, I'm pretty sure y'all have heard this. We're doing our best to edit it out, but this is my life now. There are constantly uh, car noises that are being picked up when we're recording. It's coming from where I live. I recently found out that street racing is a problem here in Dallas. And maybe I've been living under a rock or maybe it's because I haven't left the house in a year and a half. Just kidding. It hasn't been that long, but that's how long it feels. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I had no idea this was a thing and it got worse with the pandemic. And so I live right by a highway and I guess that's where, or an interstate, um, there's both over there. And I guess that's where a lot of this racing is happening because it is so fucking loud all the time. Well, I think to put it in more perspective, you do live next to an interstate, but in between your apartment and the interstate is a creek with a green belt, a parking garage, and an office building, and then a parking lot on the other side of the office building, and then the freeway. So <laughs> you have the a point. fact the fact that I mean we'll be recording and we'll be of course it always feels like it's when we're in like our most heart-wrenching parts of our cases. Be like, and they found her. She'd been dead 10 seconds. <laughs> All the time. And that's, <laughs> that was, oh God, that was such a real example. <laughs> because that's what it feels like. And I, I honestly am surprised it doesn't wake me up. But wake me up inside. <laughs> the most time I spend in this room is um I mean, it's my bedroom, so I record in here and I sleep in here. I hear this when I'm in the living room too, but for some reason it's it's like it's intensified here when it was um you know, still late fall or whatever, I was trying to do the thing where I'm like, well, I really don't want to pay for the air conditioner (laughs) because (laughs) I'm cheap sometimes. And it was really nice outside. And I'm one of those people that absolutely loves having the windows open. Like literally, I I do it when it's 30 degrees outside because I love having the windows open. I haven't gotten sick, but I, I had to start closing the windows because it was so loud when we recorded. So what's even crazier is those sounds are coming with my window closed and we can it, the mic is still picking them up. So anyway, if if you guys were wondering, we're not adding some weird sound effects. That is real life. <laughs> that is that is what I live next to. Yeah. Honestly, you moved from a place that was basically right under an airport and <laughs> we could hear the Southwest <laughs> flights landing every 10 minutes. Um now to you live next to Texas Motorway. I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't ever hear anything like that. I just hear gunshots, so Welcome to City Living. Yeah. Anyways, though. Well, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I live at a racetrack, apparently. Yeah. The, you the do. gas station. I live yeah. at the gas station. <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> You know, easy access to uh to some good snacks. Snacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just snacks. Um yes, I don't live next to a racetrack. I just face a pool, so 
not this summer for obvious reasons, but the previous one, I would have issues of like, oh, well, there's a party downstairs of people just having the time of their lives on a Wednesday evening at the pool. But then also sometimes I was one of those people, so I can't judge that much. <laughs> you can't. You can't, you know. Um, but before we jump into our episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to chat with y'all about Patreon. So as a quick reminder for all of y'all that are our Patreon family members or who are wanting to be, we have our live drink with us. We actually, I don't know what we call them. We haven't picked a name with them yet. Drink for with them us. Yet. Drink That's with us. That's what they're I called. Mean, yeah. So we have that on February 5th at 8 p.m. Central Time. I mean, you're right. We did not officially name it, but that's what we've been calling it since we started doing it. So I th- I think that's the name. I think it is too. And I mean, if y'all have better names than that, uh, join us and let us know. <laughs> uh, but yes, 8 p.m. Central Time on February 5th. So if you are not in the central time zone, just make sure to like check your clocks and stuff. If you're not in the U.S. and want to join, let's see, that's uh, like 2 a.m. if you're in the U.K. or that part of Western Europe, feel free to log in and join us. The 5th is a Friday, so, you know, it's just it's just staying up late Friday night <laughs> to drink with uh, drink with your American friends. <laughs> and maybe have a couple drinks beforehand. I mean, I mean, we will. <laughs> um, also, on the subject of Patreon is today's topic, Patreon murders. No, <laughs> no, our topic is a pick from Katie Barnett. She is a Cabernet Sauvignon convict uh, level tier thing a thing in the Patreon family. And so as a perk, she gets to direct her own episode. And for today's episode, we are doing Disappeared Without a Trace. Katie sent us a case that she really wanted us to do. So we kind of built the topic of Disappearing Without a Trace around it. And I am excited. This is going to be a really interesting episode because there's always a lot of questions that come with this topic. Some are answered, mm-hmm. some aren't, and you'll see where we're going to take it. Yes. So, Katie, thank you so, so much for the case, for this topic, and yeah. But before we jump into the topic, it's time to open some bottles of wine. Yes, it is. So, Brittany, what wine are you drinking today? Today, I will be drinking the 2018 Rough and Ready Petit Verdot vs. Petit Syrah from Lodi, California. This one caught my eye because the label is literally people boxing and punching each other in the face, like with the boxing gloves. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, the title, or I guess the name, Petit Verdot vs. Petit Syrah, it honestly took me longer than I'd like to admit. Oh, versus. Yeah. But they're combined. It's a red blend. That's what I couldn't figure out. Uh, Oh. Okay. Glad to know I'm not the only one because I was like, okay, so which one is this? (laughs) Like, what am I about to drink? It's like, did you get the Petit Verdot or the Petit Syrah? That would actually be cool if they did that and it was like a two pack of bottles you buy. That would be really cool. But instead, they pour them into the same bottle. Oh, well. But it's a really gorgeous bottle, and it's only $8 at Trader Joe's, so definitely within our price range. It's a very bold, tannic, dry wine with medium acidity. 
It's a unique blend. Like I said, I have never seen a blend of Petit Verdot and Petit Syrah. And if I if I have, I didn't realize they were both in there or it had multiple wines. But like just these two combined, never seen that yeah. before. It's just little. It's got both petites in it. <laughs> the bottle is actually three inches tall. <laughs> but it still holds the same amount. It's very wide. It's, it's a an- disc of wine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an Alice in Wonderland wine. Oh. So it is ruby red with some purple hues, and it's filled with aromas of raspberry jam, black pepper, and maraschino cherries. Oh. Don't tell me that doesn't sound interesting. Interesting, yes. One of the reviewers, I loved the way that he wrote this. So I'm, I want to tell you guys. So he said, quote, it's a kaleidoscope of cherry, raspberry, oak, leather, vanilla, baking spice, jasmine tea, black cherry, mocha, fig, and cinnamon. So there's a lot happening in here, apparently. And he was one of those wow. people that has like 700 reviews on Vivino. And I'm like, I'm going to trust that you know what you're talking about, or you're just really good at this. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> also, jasmine tea. That's an interesting one for a red. But also, maybe um, just because of the books that I'm reading, thanks to you, jasmine has taken a whole new meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me think of Reese. I got Tyler to read the A Court of Thorns and Roses series. Y'all, I'm going to pause for just a quick second. We're not going to jump into this because I could talk for literally this entire episode about it. But yes. if you have not picked up the A Court of Thorns and Roses series, do yourself a huge favor. Pick it up. The first book is phenomenal. Also read it. Don't just hold it. <laughs> read it. <laughs> the first book is phenomenal. But I promise you, number two, holy shit. It is one of the best books I've ever read, ever, ever, ever. I'm new in the world of fantasy, like outside of some of the ones that we've all read, like Hunger Games and Harry Potter. Maybe we haven't all, but those are the ones I read growing up. And I haven't really read a lot of fantasy as an adult, y'all. It is a YA book, but it's totally not. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's YA in the in the actual meaning of young adult. Like, like are you 25? Cool. Yeah. You can read this book. Are you 15? Please put it down. Go I mean, <laughs> go yeah. get some ice cream and turn on Nickelodeon. I don't think 15-year-olds <laughs> do that. I think that's actually millennials. I think that's 25 and 30-year-olds who are like, you know what? I'm going to watch some old Rugrats, have my ice cream, but also wine. But no, I fully blame <laughs> Brittany um, because I was up reading and drinking wine last night till 4 a.m. It's a school night. And by that, I mean a work night. But yeah, I, I blame Brittany for that, for introducing me to the book, because I am getting to the points where I can't put it down. And that's really hard when I also have a job that I, I need to put it down. <laughs> Honestly, so I can though, sleep. There are worse things you could be doing that you're up until 4 a.m. But last shout out, it's by Sarah J. Mass, M-A-A-S. Just go read them and tell us what you think. You're going to love them. And if you hate them, don't tell me about it. I don't want to talk about it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes. Uh, But your wine. So I'm going to open this wine. And I, like I said, I'm really excited to try this one. All right. This has an interesting little, like, lip on the glass. But let's get into this beauty. Oh. You know, sometimes when you open a bottle of red wine and it smells like feet a little bit. 
Like ch- no. Like, yes, yes, <laughs> like cheese rind, like brie. Okay. That smells like feet. Brie smells like feet. Don't don't no, try that. No, parm parmesan smells like feet, like bad feet. Like if your feet <laughs> smell like parmesan, get a pedicure or take a bath. I don't know either one. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess getting a pedicure would be kind of rude. It's like my feet smell. I'm gonna <laughs> stick them in someone's face. So today I'm also drinking out of one of my like glass goblet things. Yeah, it's fancy. It is fancy. So it's like orange and yellow with like really pretty patterns. It's one of those like really fun goblets that you find at like a thrift store, which is exactly where I found this. And I've got a couple. I've got this one and a few pink ones. And I rarely use them, but I should use some more. They're so much fun. Like, I can't get rid of this glass. It's gorgeous. Oh, I know. I, I, I almost took a drink. <laughs> wow. Uh, please don't yet. I really want to get, like, a stone goblet just to live my, like, fantasy. It would look like I'm drinking blood. <laughs> like, red wine out of a stone goblet. But you know what? Halloween next year. I could be a vampire continually drinking wine like most Halloweens. I think it sounds like a good idea. Anyway, Tyler, what wine are you going to be drinking for this episode? So I'm drinking the 2018 Bar Dog Cabernet Sauvignon from California. And I also got this one because the label, because it has like a little Boston Terrier on the bottom in like black and white sketch. And then he has a golden monocle. Anyway, I was like, that's adorable. I'm buying this. And it was like, $13, I think. So not very expensive. This, even though it like is a cab, it has a couple other wines in it. So it's 95% cab, 2% petite Verdot, 2% petite Syrah, and 1% Merlot. So your wine is in my wine. It is. Uh, Also, it's aged in New French Oak. And the website, they describe it as polished and silky in texture with beautiful blueberry aromas that combine with ripe plum and cocoa flavors, mingling throughout the long, expressive finish. Sounds really good. Yeah. And then I found one review that almost like full on mirrored what the bottle said. So I'm like, oh, damn. Okay. I expect those because they said it was a great wine for the price. Uh, aromas of plum and cocoa, flavors of blueberry, chocolate, plum, and oak. Thoroughly pleasing, but must let it air for at least 30 minutes. Ooh. And that's not happening, so I'm sorry, Sam. Not going to let it air for 30 minutes. Okay, well, I'm going to get this open. Which I know you can't aerate it for 30 minutes, but you could just leave the cork out and it'll aerate. I mean, that's what I always do. Same. Ugh. There we go. You're so dramatic. Well, it just it. I what it is is I never like ease it out enough using the little yeah the part that you're supposed to use to get it out. <laughs> yeah, I get the cork like halfway and then just pull. Also, my brain instantly just went to like the little lever and fulcrum because apparently I just think in terms of simple machines. I have no idea what you're talking about. Simple machines. They're simple. Meteor. Anyways, I'm pouring my wine. Okay, pour your wine. I'm still confused, but go ahead. Oh, interesting. That's like a garnet color. Yeah. Oh, whoa. 
That is blueberry. That's like blueberry cobbler blueberry. Interesting. That's like not sweet, oh. but the like concentrated blueberry aroma. I keep wanting to call it odor, but it's aroma. <laughs> <laughs> it's the blueberry odor. It would have. It's what happens when your blueberries don't wear deodorant. Oh yeah. God, what if deodorant was like fruit scented and stuff? Like blueberry deodorant. Mmm. Gross. I know. But is it any grosser than the man scents that are like iced gun? And I'm like, I hate this. Just give me mahogany teak wood. It's all anyone needs. I know. Um, again, we've talked about this before. I don't know what a plum smells like, but I'm sure it's in there. Wanna know something that's very interesting? I'm sitting here with my wine glass like on the table in front of me, not directly in front of me. It is all I can smell. This is a very strong smelling wine. Like not bad. Strong odor. (laughs) Not bad. It doesn't smell like feet anymore. But it's really strong. Okay. Well, um, I've given mine 30 seconds to aerate, and that's basically 30 minutes. So I think we should cheers. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Hold the front door. Whoa. Kaleidoscope for sure. I don't even know how to identify all these flavors. That is much, much drier than I thought it would be. Like, I don't, Cabernet Sauvignons are never like sweet wines, but California cabs are generally more fruity and have just a a touch of sweetness, or at least like what we call sweetness. Um, Not this one. This, this tastes a lot more like a French cab. I'm getting a lot more of the like, earthiness like it says cocoa but like the bitterness of like cocoa powder oh interesting not like chocolate more like actual cocoa yeah more like cacao cacao like a 50s comic book yeah you know just casual onomatopoeias so i'm gonna have to find that one if that was more like a french cab i totally want to taste it oh you would love this one it is good this is a good cab damn I thought the wine I had last week was, like, one of the best wines I've I've ever had. This is really good. Good. So, this one is really good. It has so much flavor. It's very, very bold. There's a lot going on in this wine. And I will say, I do think before I get into my case, I am going to pour this into a proper red wine glass. And I say that because it needs to open up more. My goblet, while I call it a goblet, it's actually really small and there's not that wide of an opening. And this is one of the things that like we've talked about as being a thing. Sometimes we actually adhere to it. Most of the times we don't. I drink out of whatever I want to. This is a wine that does need to be consumed in a proper red wine glass because it needs to breathe a little bit more. There's a lot of flavors happening. So I need to get more air into it so it can open up completely. I say that. This one is, um, I can feel the alcohol, like, oh. in my throat. Not not like it's, like, whiskey or anything, but it is warming. There's that leather and that oak as it, you know, slides down my throat. Definitely some baking spices. I get a lot of that cinnamon and some pepper. And I will say the, the upfront is, like, a little bit of cherry, but mostly it's these other just very... I, I want to think of a word better than heavy, but it's like these very heavy flavors. This like is a dense. Re- yeah. Yeah. Like you feel this wine on your tongue. 
Can you feel the wine tonight? I really like this one. This is a sipper, though, for sure. This is not a wine. This is not rosé. I'm not going to drink this bottle in 10 minutes. Okay. Well, I was about to be like, okay, what wine are you going to say, you chug? (laughs) (laughs) Because I think all wines are sipping wines because you shouldn't, maybe not sipping, but you shouldn't chug wine. There's that one TikTok I saw of that woman who like takes off the cork of her wine and like upends it and chugs like half of it. And it's a bottle of red. Ew. I, I would vomit. Like, I don't, my body couldn't do that. No, that's so That's also wrong. wasteful. Yeah, that is Or not. Wasteful. But yeah, don't do that. Well, anyways, we're not going to drink our wine like that. We're going to drink it like civilized human beings. And as, we're, as we are civilized human beings, let's talk about murder. So, Brittany, tell me about your disappeared without a trace case. Also, one side note before you do jump in. Every time I use the phrase without a trace, it makes me think of that one TV show... Back in the day when, like, every TV show was CSI something, and then there was also Without a Trace. Is that why all millennials and, like, people our age are obsessed with true crime? Because from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., every TV station, it's CSI or Murder Something or Criminal Minds. And it's like, well, that's how we grew up, is watching gruesome murder happen right after dinner. And during the day, we watched Unsolved Mysteries. And Judge Judy just to pepper in some lightness. But <laughs> boom, that that side of the legal system. And then Jerry Springer. No, absolutely not. It was on after Judy or before. I refuse. But okay, anyways, uh, yes. So what is your case that disappeared without a trace? I will be talking about the murder of Jessica Haringa. The sources I used, an article on The Charlie Project, as well as an article on the Unsolved Mysteries wiki page. So the year is 2013. Jessica at this time was a 25-year-old single mother raising her three-year-old son. She was hoping to go back to college and study accounting, but at this point in time, she was working as a clerk at an ExxonMobil station in Northern Shores, Michigan. On Friday, April 26th, She was abducted from the station while she was working the evening shift. Oh my god. Wait. I mean, gas stations, I feel like, are the place with the most cameras. Well, I will get into that information. Okay. Her last known sale happened at 10.54pm. Then at 11.07, so just a few minutes later, a customer discovered the store completely abandoned. The police were called at 1115 And when they arrived, they found her cigarettes and her lighter still next to the register, her coat, purse, keys, ID card, $420 in cash were left inside the store, and her car was still parked outside. So obviously robbery was not the motive here. There were no indications of any type of struggle happening. No money was missing from the register. And so this suggested to police that she had to have been taken by someone she knew. There was a small amount of blood that was found outside the back door of the convenience store, and it was later determined to be Jessica's blood. There was a witness that reported seeing a suspicious man and a vehicle near the back door of the station shortly before the time Jessica vanished. Another witness reported seeing a man flirting with her at the gas station, 
This man was described as Caucasian in his 30s, about six feet tall, medium to heavy build, and wavy sandy brown or blonde hair. He was wearing a bright red or orange sweatshirt and was driving a silver minivan, possibly a 2005 Chrysler Town and Country. Oh, ew. This gas station in particular had no surveillance cameras. What? None. I, that's just so surprising. I, I mean, I used to way back in the day have a job and part of it was looking at the security cameras for gas stations. And we have like 40 in each store. Like, I know. Wow. This blows my mind. And I'm sure they had cameras, but clearly they were dummies. I know, but even like a camera watching the cigarette case and one watching the register and one watching the like beer and stuff like, I guess I didn't realize that you were allowed to not have cameras. I don't know if you are because this is very suspicious to me and I have never, like you, I I was very flabbergasted with this because never in my life have I heard of a gas station that didn't have cameras because... A lot of the times gas stations are what is being robbed. People are living like a very transient life or like passing through town. They want some money. They rob a gas station. Like this makes no sense to me. I know. Damn. Okay. There was a camera on a business about a mile away and it shows a silver minivan driving by at 11.04 PM. That was right around the time of Jessica's disappearance. Yeah. So for three years... Nothing's really happening. There's just not a lot to go off of. The police, they do have some evidence, but the witness statements aren't really leading them to anyone. They're not, they're not getting very far. But in May 2016, a man named Jeffrey Thomas Willis was arrested and charged with kidnapping a 16-year-old girl, Madison Nygaard. This girl, thankfully, was able to escape from him after he lured her into his van. Ugh, do not trust people in vans. Don't get into someone's van, please. Several days later, Jeffrey was also charged with the murder of Rebecca Sue Bletch. She was a 36-year-old woman who was shot to death while jogging in Dalton Township, Michigan in June 2014. So two years prior to this. Ballistics evidence was found that connected him to this crime. So with him being convicted of a kidnapping and a murder that seemed somewhat similar to Jessica's, he became a person of interest in Jessica's disappearance. But one of the main reasons was because his minivan was silver and similar to the one that was believed to have been driven by her abductor, the one that was caught on this camera at the business a mile away. Specifically, he had a 2006 Dodge Grand Caravan. And according to his co-workers, He had been to her gas station many times before because it was on his route to work. Okay. His co-workers also stated he discussed Jessica's case with them right after she went missing. Which, okay, I guess to me, I'm like, yeah, it depends on what he was saying. And I couldn't really find more information. But I'm like, I talk about current cases and whatnot with my co-workers all the time, especially if it happens in your city. Yeah, well, and it sounds like a small enough city that like, I mean, if someone disappeared from the Shell station that's like a mile up the road from me, I would never know. But it's it's the gas station he frequents, it's on his way. If he'd heard about it, 
And his conversation with his coworkers was like, oh my God, did you hear? Like, one of the people from the gas station was like kidnapped or something. Then, yeah, that's not suspicious at all. It would honestly kind of be more suspicious if he had never said anything. That's a very good point. But, you know, he was being convicted of kidnap and murder. So that's true. maybe whatever he was saying to his coworkers was suspicious. When police searched his van, they found a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol with the serial number filed off, ammunition for the pistol, a, a, why are all these words so hard? <laughs> a sheathed knife, two video recorders, five syringes, and bondage material. Oh no. Syringes. Jeffrey also had bondage pornography, child pornography, a five-page list of American serial killers, and a three-page list of women's names and telephone numbers in his home. What the fuck? Authorities believe that he downloaded child pornography off the internet and used a hidden camera to record images of minor girls using the bathroom in his home. He's also been charged in connection with this as well. What the fuck? He's a really, really bad dude. Like, this is, you know, like I said, they get this warrant to search his van, and this is where they're finding all of this stuff. Additionally, he did also happen to match the witness's description of the suspect down to his blonde streaked hair. But I will say, this person sounded pretty common, pretty recognizable, or like, pretty uh, blendable. There's a lot of people that are like tall white guys with sandy brown hair. Yeah, it sounds like it's a bigger white guy who needs a haircut in northern Michigan. Like, yeah, well, and the thing is, we know eyewitness testimonies are one of the most unreliable things. It's unfortunate that you can see something and it might not be reliable. But I know, like, I mean, the only time I'm I've remember that i've ever had to give eyewitness testimony was for a event that happened outside my job that i saw but i I wasn't paying a ton of attention and i literally saw it happen could not describe if the person was wearing a hat or not if all these and i was like i'm i'm sorry like hr and security I, i i i don't know i know the times i've had to do it i'm like i don't know what I actually saw. And I could, and where it gets really difficult is if you see something, but you don't know you're seeing something. So it's like you're not engaging your brain. It's very easy to create memories. And this is one of the mm-hmm. things that police have to be very careful about when they are interrogating someone or when they are even just questioning a witness. They can't plant ideas. It's really hard. So they can't be like, So can you tell me, you know, were they white, black, tall, short? It's all that can lead to this witness being Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I think he was wearing a black shirt. Yeah. Was he wearing a hat? You know? Yeah. Yeah, he was. And you can see it as clear as day in your head, even if it didn't happen. So Mm -hmm. there there is a lot against Jeffrey going on here, but I did just want to point out like the the fact that he did match this witness's description. They had had a hard time finding a witness, and I think it's because of how common those traits are. Yeah. Based on credit card receipts, investigators discovered that Jeffrey had visited the store at least 15 times prior to Jessica's abduction. 
Phone records also placed him there just hours before her abduction. And when he was questioned, he told police that he was home at that time, but his phone records actually placed him near his grandfather's house, which was close to the gas station. Following the abduction, Jeffrey did not show up for work for several days. Oh. Remember the blood spot I told you about that was outside in the back of the convenience store? Mm -hmm. Near that, investigators found pieces of a laser sight for a gun. So whatever the part is where you like look it in and the laser and all that stuff. And it matched the gun that was found in Jeffrey's van that happened to be missing that same piece. Okay. The original owner of the gun identified the laser sight as belonging to the gun. And the gun was also determined to be the murder weapon in Rebecca's case. So there's a lot of things that are, like I said, stacking up against Jeffrey in these multiple cases that are tied together. Tied together because of Jeffrey. Yeah. Investigators also found a folder labeled VIX, like V-I-C-S, on Jeffrey's computer. Oh, like victims? Exactly. Within this folder, there were subfolders about Rebecca and Jessica. He also changed his passwords to J4L27H13. This password, it indicates Jessica's initials and the day of her disappearance. So the numbers 42713, when she disappeared, JLH, her initials. Oh, Oh, I don't like that shit at all. So while a ton of this is circumstantial, technically, no, this is looking really bad for him. Like, I mean, there's yeah. direct evidence that he is looking at these women, like that he is somehow attached to this. And there are pieces of, of his possessions found at the site of her abduction. And then also that gun being identified as the one used in Rebecca's murder. Like, come on, Jeffrey, this is not looking good for you. Uh, no. Kevin Bloom, who was Jeffrey's cousin, he was charged with lying to police in their investigation into Jeffrey's suspected crimes, including Jessica's disappearance. When Kevin was questioned in mid-May of 2016, he said that he had not seen Jeffrey for almost a year and that he had never seen him with a handgun. But in an interview a month later, he admitted that he saw Jeffrey in early May and that Jeffrey showed him a handgun at the same time. He then said that Jeffrey forced him to take care of Miss Haringa. Kevin then said he saw Jessica's nude body at his grandfather's house, and she had head injuries and injuries consistent with sexual assault. He also claimed that he helped Jeffrey dispose of the body. However, for unknown reasons, he recanted his statement, claiming that he made everything up but he later pleaded no contest to helping dispose of her body. In November 2017, Jeffrey Willis was convicted of Rebecca's murder, and he's still awaiting trial in the connection with Madison Nygaard's kidnapping. In September 2016, so like a year prior to that conviction, this is when he was charged with Jessica's kidnapping and murder. She has been presumed murdered. Yeah. Although the case presenting at his trial in May 2018, like I said, a lot of this evidence was circumstantial because of just how everything was stacking up, how very tied in, like you knew he was involved. 
Yeah. There is some type of involvement that Jeffrey had with all of this. And this was after Rebecca's murder. So I know some of that evidence, like the gun evidence, um, was between both of these cases. Even with all of this circumstantial evidence, the jury deliberated for only an hour and a half before convicting him of another mandatory life sentence. Oh, huh. This is one of those where, like I said, he is involved. There's no doubt in my mind that he is involved. Yeah. What this hard evidence is that he is the kidnapper and the murderer, I don't know. It feels very (laughs) circumstantial. Although, whatever was on his computer, you can tell there's a plan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. I am convinced he is involved. I don't know if I... If I were someone on the jury, even with that convict, like that knowledge that like, yeah, he is involved somehow. I don't know if I could say guilty on just the circumstantial evidence, but then it, you know, it goes into like, okay, well, do you just wait and not do anything like until you find her body and stuff? So, I mean, it's hard, but I don't like cases that are convictions based on purely circumstantial evidence, no matter how convincing that looks to be. Me either. And the fact that her body, it's never been found. They're still searching for it. But getting a life conviction without a body, that's not a simple task. Like That is very difficult to do. His cousin Kevin was later convicted of being an accessory after the fact and sentenced to time served, which was 476 days. Kevin was the one that said, like, Jeffrey told him to take care of Jessica, but, like, not in the, like, take care of her, like, take care of her. Like, yeah, like, take care of this. And so the staggering difference in their convictions when... I mean, I guess he really, like, he said this, and then he took it back, and there's nothing besides his word. Like, none of this evidence is really tying to him. But I just, it's very interesting for me to see this the stark differences in these sentences, 476 days versus a life sentence, when, yeah. I mean, Kevin maybe was wrong place, wrong time, because he's his cousin, they were at the grandfather's house, who knows? But his lying, like, man, don't lie to the cops, you guys. Just don't do it. Um, Anyway, that is Jessica's disappearance. Like I said, her body has never been discovered. There is still hope that her body is going to be found. And, you know, maybe we'll have some more information. But at this point in time, Jeffrey is serving a life sentence for her murder and kidnapping. Wow. And I feel like with the cousin's sentencing of time served, You know, if they had been like, oh, you get 10 years in prison, but if you tell us where her body is, we can lower that or something like that, maybe there could have been more of a chance, if Kevin does know where her body's hidden, of finding her, but... I know. I don't... Oh, my God. There's also the chance that Kevin doesn't know anything. Yeah, and he was just lying the first time. Yeah. Or I guess the second time, whenever he made his, like, story confession. Exactly. That could also be total bullshit. So this case is really confusing because Jeffrey is a murderer. You know, he was convicted of murdering Rebecca. He's presumed to and was convicted of Jessica's murder. And there's still, he still hasn't gone to trial in connection with Madison's kidnapping. And Madison is the one that got away. Yeah. So all around, Jeffrey is a, a bad dude. Yeah. 
he is. But Tyler, that's my case. So now it's your turn. Tell me about your disappearing without a trace. So the case I'm doing today is the case of the Fort Worth Missing Trio. The sources that I used, the Wikipedia page for the Fort Worth Missing Trio, an article on Medium by Tamara Gain, and then MissingTrio.com. It's a website that it looks like it's run by one of the victim's brothers, uh, who was 11 when his sister disappeared. So on the morning of December 23rd, two days before Christmas, 1974, just a little before noon, Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley set out to go Christmas shopping at the mall. Rachel was 17 years old, and she was a high school student at Southwest High School in Fort Worth, and she was married. She also drove a 1972 Oldsmobile 98, which that was the car that the girls took to the mall that day. At the time of the disappearance, she'd been married to her husband, Tommy Trelisa, for about six months. Oh, they were newlyweds. Yeah. Renee Wilson, she was 14 years old. And the youngest of the girls, Julianne Mosley, she was nine years old. So on December 23rd, Rachel, she decides to go Christmas shopping at the Seminary South Shopping Center there in Fort Worth. She'd asked her older sister, Deborah to come along, but Deborah was like, nah, I'm tired. I want to sleep in. So Rachel's like, okay, I'll go pick up Renee, because um, she and Renee were friends. And Renee was actually spending the weekend at her grandparents' house. The two families, they were close, like the girls had known each other their whole lives and were like lifelong friends. That morning, Renee was with her boyfriend, 15-year-old Terry Mosley. He lived across the street, and that morning he'd woken her up and given her a promise ring. Rachel calls Renee, like, hey, let's go do some last-minute Christmas shopping. And Renee's like, yes, but we have to be back by 4 p.m. Terry and I are going to a Christmas party tonight. I want to make sure I have time to get ready and everything, and I got to look good to show off my new promise ring he just got me. So I'm making sure in my head to... Remind myself that this is the 70s because I'm trying to picture like a 14-year-old girl doing these things. And I'm like, what? Girl, you sound like you're 18. But I mean, if her friend's 17 and married, I forget you get married when you're so much younger. And Mm -hmm. they just, they seem very mature for these ages. They really do. Julianne, mostly, she was actually Terry's little sister. Um, And again, they lived across the street from Renee's grandparents. and. Also, Julie would stay with Renee's grandparents when, like, her mom was at work and stuff. Julie would go over to the neighbor's house. That day, she saw Rachel and Renee getting ready to go shopping. Um, and she was like, oh, can I come along? Because I don't, I don't really want to spend the whole day alone. Like, mom's at work. My friends are gone and stuff. I don't want to be at home. And so the older girls were like, yes, but you need to call your mom and get her permission to come. Totally again, fair. Yeah, but again, like, very mature. Yeah, they're like, sure, Julie, you can join us, but call your mom first. So Julianne, she runs into the house, calls her mom, and her mom is like, honey, no, you don't have any money, just stay home. And Julianne's mom, she knew Renee, and she knew that family really well, because they were, again, like, the neighbors across the street and all, but she didn't know Rachel. 
But Julie kept like whining about how she doesn't have anyone to play with. So her mom's like, okay, but you have to be home by six. Well, since Renee needed to be home by four, that was like, oh, it's perfect. Yeah, we'll that's be not, home. Not a problem. Yeah, we'll be home way before then. So just a little bit before noon, they get in the car and they they head out. They stopped by the Army Navy store to pick up some layaways and then traveled to Seminary South, which now it's like the Fort Worth Town Center is what it's known as. I don't know Fort Worth that well, but to the mall. Several witnesses reported seeing them in the mall that day, but they didn't return home. So the family started to get concerned, and at about 6 p.m., they were like, you know what, let's go to the mall and see if we can find them. Because it's later, you know, they said they'd be back by 4. Now it's 6, so it's only been a couple hours, but family, I mean, you can't get a hold of them, it's the 70s. What do you do, call the Sears, and you're like, hey, can you page for Rachel, Renee, and Julie? I mean, I guess that's what you would do, I have no idea. I think so. So the families get to the mall and they find the car parked in like the upper level parking lot of the Sears. And they, they're looking at the car and it looks like the girls had made it back to the car after their shopping. Like all the gifts and shopping bag stuff were in the car. Oh. So they're like, okay, but where are the girls? They stayed at the mall all night waiting for the girls to show up. But they didn't. That morning... Or maybe that night. I'm not 100% sure when they called the police. But they called the police and the case was handed over to the youth division of the Missing Persons Bureau. Because all three of them were declared missing. At first, though, the police were like, oh, the girls, they just ran away. That's what they did. God, it drives me crazy when that is the first assumption. But this is prior to knowing how important that first 48 hours is, right? Because that was in the 80s, I think. Or the 70s. I think so. Um, Maybe, but yeah, this being early 70s, I think it was before that really became the mindset. But also, I'm like, their car is still there with all their stuff in it. Like, are you saying they literally ran away on foot? They bought the stuff and they were like, you know what? Let's go. And just started marching away from the mall. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, the parents were like, that's fucking stupid. That is not, that is clearly not what happened. But something happened the next morning that kind of reinforced the police's theory and basically set a lot of weird stuff in motion. So that next morning, a letter arrived in the mail. It was addressed to Rachel's husband, but the name on the envelope was like to Thomas A. Trelisa. Which was just very formal, and Rachel never called him Thomas. It was Tommy. Right. On the envelope, there was no city name, and the letter was written on this, like, sheet of paper that was a little bit wider than the envelope, so, like, not a standard piece of paper, and this, like, childish-looking writing that didn't really look like Rachel's, because she's a 17-year-old high school student, this didn't look like her writing, but it said... I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in Sears Upper Lot. Love, Rachel. We're going to catch it? I ass- I'm i reading that into like, I know we're going to get a lot of shit for this. Oh. Because when I first read it, my 2021 mind went, COVID? catch what? 
I know. Yeah. I was thinking of some type of illness. But uh, no, I think it's more of like, a, we're, I know we're going to get a lot of shit for this, but we had to get away. I'll see you in a week. Yeah. Like what? Houston? And also, so like, you know, Rachel signed her name in it. And the I in her last name, it, it her last name is misspelled. Like someone had wrote, written an E and then like, oh shit. And like written an I over it. So it's like, okay, she misspelled her own last name. I don't think so. I don't think so either. Yeah, Rachel's mom, she never believed the letter came from her daughter. And Tommy also was like, this did not come from Rachel. Handwriting experts, though, were, they weren't sure, like, every, it was inconclusive, the handwriting tests. I mean, they are the experts, but that seems weird to me. Uh, yeah. It's also the early 70s, so I'm like, maybe it's, maybe what we think of as, like, handwriting matching and experts now it's developed a lot more since then. Well, I mean, a lot of the technologies have developed, so that's yeah. true. But also, I mean, like, shit, we bought signed T-Swift CDs over the holidays, yeah. and the signatures on them, I mean, look different. But you could so still th- tell the same person. I mean, you can, but I'm just like, you know, this stuff is coming back as inconclusive. It doesn't look like her writing but I could see if, you know, maybe on the granular level, oh, no, these L's are how she makes her L's. And, you know, pieces like that. I don't know. Speaking of her signed T-Swift albums, don't think I don't know you didn't pick the one with the best swoop. Uh, I Yeah, they came to my apartment. I got first pick. <laughs> <laughs> of course I picked the best looking one. I know. You sent me the picture and I was like, which one are you taking? And you're like, bottom left. I'm like, God damn it. All right, I'll take the top right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so anyways, I mean, I'm not a handwriting expert, but the handwriting test came back in- inconclusive. But again, no one in the families believed the letter came from Rachel. And the families did not believe that the girls had run away. Julianne's mother and Julianne's, you know, remember nine years old. Yeah. She said, I know my daughter. And I know those other girls, and they are not runaways. Renee's mom said, I could have told you that night that they didn't run away. Renee really wanted to go to that party. And no nine-year-old is going to run off and run away from home two days before Christmas. You know, that is a really good point. That is so valid. When I read that, I was like, oh, of course Julie is not going to leave. Uh, yeah, she's nine. She wants her Christmas presents that are two days away. And Rachel's mom believed that they had been abducted. Because I guess there were also people saying they must have left with someone they knew because there wasn't really any scene or any sign of struggle. But she was like, no, I think they were taken. The families were not willing to give in. And so they started... They basically kept their own search kind of in tandem with the police doing their search. They started distributing out like flyers and uh, different like brochures and stuff with the girls' pictures and their information throughout the state and calling different newspapers across the country. And tips and witnesses started to come in. In early 1975, so not long after they disappeared, 
a young man, he came forward, he was an acquaintance of Rachel's, and he said that he saw them in the record store, in the in the mall, just before they disappeared. He, like, saw Rachel, she saw him, they chatted just a little bit, and he said that there was another person with the girls. I couldn't find any, like, description of this other person, so I'm not sure if it was like, oh, there was another person with them. Or if he was like, I don't know, there was another person there. It could have just been another person shopping in the store or what. Right. It, like, could just have been another shopper. Or that could have been someone involved with where they went. Yeah. Or it could have just been another person that, like him, they knew, they saw at the mall, and they were like, oh, hey. So I don't know. True. Because any person who would have come up. And seeing this interaction would be like, oh, yeah, they were with this guy when, no, they just chatted briefly in the store. So I don't know. During around this same time, it's just been a few months since they disappeared, some women's clothes were found in the Justin, Texas area. They were investigated, but it was determined that these clothes they found didn't belong to the girls. By the spring of 1975, the police investigation wasn't moving there really it didn't seem like they'd made any progress other than the girls disappeared from the mall it doesn't seem like they know anything they've gotten the one letter and they have one witness that was like yeah i saw some some dude with them or next to them i don't know yeah well and it sounds like the police are still probably mostly thinking they ran away they're runaways yeah so i don't know how much they're actually looking into it But the families, they were getting fed up with this, and they decided to hire a private detective named John Swaim. In August of 1975, so a little bit later that year, Swaim discovered that a 28-year-old man was making a string of, like, obscene phone calls in the area. He worked for a store in southern Fort Worth where Rachel had applied for a job just before Christmas. And what this guy was doing is he was using... His position at that job to get information from the young women who would apply to get a job there. He basically, they'd give him his app, their applications. He'd take it and like write down their phone numbers and he would call them. Oh. And like, yeah. So six different women who'd applied to the store had been receiving these obscene phone calls, like very sexual, very creepy. And also this guy lived in the same neighborhood as Rachel's parents. But before she got married, so more than six months before they disappeared, he moved out of the neighborhood. So there's a couple different circumstantial things that maybe he's connected, but nothing really ever came out of him. Quick dead end. Yeah. In April of 1975, Swaim went to Port Lavaca, Texas with about 100 volunteers to search under the bridges in the area because he'd gotten a tip that the girls had been taken there and killed. But no trace of them was found. They, it, No one in the Port Lavaca area had seen them or seen anything, and they found no evidence, their bodies, any weapons, anything. So, like, no evidence they had ever actually been there? Yeah. About a year later... Three skeletons were found in a field in Brazoria County by an oil drilling crew. So Swaim, he went there, he had the bones checked against x-rays and dental records of the girls. 
but it turned out that the bones belonged to a teenage boy about 15 to 17 years old and then two other females but none of them were identified as being any of the girls how horrifying is that to find three bodies to be like this could be them and they'd be like oh no it's someone else oh shit yeah we found three other bodies that's horrifying yeah In 1979, John Swaim died after a drug overdose, and his death was ruled a suicide. But upon his death, he ordered that all of his files on the case were to be destroyed. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Why? Why would an officer do that? I have no idea. He's like, he's a private in- I mean, you're right. He's not an officer. He's a PI. But still- Why would you request your files to be destroyed? Because what if, like this case, he'd made some progress, but it's still unsolved? Like, that's so unfair. Now it goes back to nothing. Or if some of the evidence he had found could be like the missing pieces the police needed. And he didn't have the full picture, and the police didn't have the full picture, but if they had come together, they could have. But yeah, and I don't know if maybe he had also been a PI for cases that were like more blackmail-y. So like some of the evidence that he had everything destroyed was I don't know. Not necessarily legal. Yeah. But still, all of his evidence, all of his case files were destroyed. Then in the spring of 1981, so now it's it's been six years. Six years, yeah. Police were called to another area of Brazoria County after human remains were found in a swampy area. But after a month of investigation, they discovered that none of the bones belonged to any of the three girls. My God, so more other bodies. Yeah, Brazoria County sounds like it's just filled with bodies. Where is Brazoria County? I'm gonna look. I don't know, but it makes me wonder. You mentioned the swamp, and I'm like, oh, shit, is this like a dumping ground? Like, is this one of those areas that murderers just know about, you know, in their murderer circles? Okay, it's a county just south of Houston and Galveston. So, yeah, and not super far from Port Lavaca. So, okay, a lot of bodies in there. But also, I'm like, okay... In the note, they said, we're going to Houston. Basically, it sounds like a lot of the investigation is kind of focusing on this area, Houston to South Texas, a little bit. There were also some other things um, that I didn't include in my notes, like a psychic from Hawaii, I guess, called the family and was like, the girls are dead. They're in an oil well near Abilene. And they weren't. And I didn't include that because psychics do pull in this shit. Like, it really bothers me. Because I'm like, these girls' families are looking for answers. All they want is is anything. And they will grab onto anything. So, even someone being like, oh, their bodies are here, is going to be a comfort because it's an answer. And I just think it's really fucked up. It... I mean, I know there are people who believe they, like, legitimately believe they do have, like, psychic abilities and stuff. I don't believe in psychic powers, but I also know there are a lot of psychics and stuff that are con artists. And a lot of times, 
I saw, I think it was on the last week tonight, a few years ago, but John Oliver did an episode going over psychics and whenever families are on the news of like a missing loved one or something, they will get inundated with calls from psychics being like, Hey, I want, I want to help pay me a thousand dollars and I'll help. Like basically these people chasing the hope that these families are grabbing onto. And I think that is so fucked up. There's so much wrong with that. So much wrong with that. And I understand why you didn't include that in your case, even though we are still talking about it. I think it's a a different point that we're talking about. One of the things that I find interesting is that it does seem that they are narrowing their investigation to the Houston area. And so I'm wondering, I'm like, did they really just tunnel vision on that letter and only look in that area? Because why would whoever wrote that letter have led them to where the bodies are? I know. And I don't know if they're tunnel visioning per se because there's a couple other things you know they did investigate the clothes that were found in justin which is like north of fort worth right that is true and so maybe they're just getting a lot more tips out of the area maybe they publicized like this was the letter it mentioned houston so they're getting more tips out of the houston-ish area i don't know now we flash forward to january of 2001 wow that's forward Yeah, 25 years after, 26 years. The case was reopened and it was assigned to a homicide detective because I guess they'd closed the case after not finding anything. But the homicide detective, Tom Bocher, he believes that the girls left the mall with someone they trusted. And he said, we can say that they were at one point seen with one individual, but we believe there was more than one involved. So maybe they did meet up with someone at the mall that was like a friend or someone they knew. And there was another person maybe like waiting in a van or waiting in a car that took them somewhere. That unfortunately makes sense. In 2018, two cars were raised from Benbrook Lake because they were thought to have a connection to the case. Brittany's eyes just got wide. A lot of these like little towns I'm mentioning we are very familiar with we are. having driven through them many times and like, oh, I've dri- driven across Benbrook Lake loads of times. Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, two cars were raised from Benbrook Lake because they thought they might have a connection to the case, but there weren't any results from them. Isn't it crazy that they leave cars in lakes if there's like most likely not a body in there? Yeah. It's just weird to me because it costs so much money to get them out that it's like, oh, we'll just leave it there. But what is so crazy to me is just to think about like every lake you pass. It's like, I wonder how many cars are in that. I know. Like, are you going to go swimming one day when like, oh, there's been a drought for a couple of years. So the water's quite a bit lower and your feet touch the hood of a car that's been underwater for 40 years. Yes. That. That literally just happens all the time. Does it really? Yeah, like when we had the big drought in Texas five years ago, whenever it was, and a lot of the lakes were drying up, there were just all these pictures of just cars everywhere because the lakes, you know, had completely dried up. So everything that had been dumped in or was in there was now out in the open. And I, I saw a news article that was talking about how a lot of disappearances were being solved. Because of these cars that were found in these dried up lakes, that no one knew these cars were there. And 
I mean, cases from decades past of like, oh, yeah, my brother just disappeared. Uh, It turns out he got in a wreck and the car went into the lake and they found him. Like so many of those. That's literally horrifying. And I will say, I totally thought you were joking when you're like swimming and hitting a car because that happens. But then I realized, no, you're dead serious. And it's just really creepy to me to think how many people disappeared because of an accident in their car goes in the lake and no one ever knows. I mean, yeah. Because if there's not major like road disturbance, like you're not going to, you're not going to know if there's not like a fence that broke when you went into the lake, like you're not going to know. Yeah. Especially if it happens at night, like, you know, maybe you fall asleep at the wheel or you're driving drunk or something and your car just goes in the lake. If there's no one there to see it and yeah, you don't like hit a fence or something, you just disappeared. Yeah. There were throughout the years, though, there were a few possible witnesses, and I lean heavily on the word possible. So around the time that the girls disappeared, a store clerk came forward and said that a woman told her that she'd seen the girls at the mall that day. And the woman reported that she saw three girls being forced into a yellow pickup truck near the Buddy's grocery store, which is in the mall. The truck she said it had lights on top of it, but this witness could never be located by the police, and the story was never able to be verified. And this to me is very interesting that basically someone would have seen that happen and not called the police, just told a store clerk. But then again, as I say it out loud, I'm like, I guess that's not that crazy. If she kind of if she expected the store clerk to call the police, you know, or it happened in front of the store. So she's telling the store clerk, you know. Well, and you've also got to remember, this is the 70s. It's not like she has a cell phone to do it herself right then. She tells the store clerk they have a phone in the store. Yeah. And if the store clerk didn't, you know, take down her name and number, how are you ever going to find her? It just sucks that she never came forward after I'm sure she saw this in the news. I know. But that's one thing where I say possible witness. Right. Because the three of them getting forced into a pick, yellow pickup truck with lights on top. I mean, I'm assuming probably like country boy lights, not like, oh, I'm a tow truck lights. I don't know. What else is a yellow truck doing? I don't know. But you know how like country guys have to like load up their trucks with all the stupid shit and like put fucking flood lamps on the top or fog lamps no floodlights floodlights they're floodlights and i know it's because tds is really really bad in here in texas tiny dick syndrome yeah <laughs> i never heard it as tds and i'm like what is that <laughs> is that like covid should we be scared of it you- we should be scared of it but mostly because it's straight men and all they do is kidnap and murder women uh, a lot of them do yeah in the end this woman this witness she was never found and so i i don't know how much police looked into that in 1981 so like six years after their disappearance a man said he'd been in the parking lot that day and he'd seen a man forcing a girl into a van and i guess this witness went up to this man because this man told him that this is a family dispute and stay out of it and so the guy did 
And then six years later was like, you know, maybe I should report that. That mall where the three girls went missing and I saw some being forced into a van. I guess it's been six years now I should say something. I just hope that people listening, if you ever do see something, please just say something. Because again, best case scenario is you're wrong and you didn't see something. But maybe you did. Uh, Yeah. Then in April of 2001... Bill Hutchins, who's a former Fort Worth police officer and also a security guard at the Seminary South Sears outlet, so the Sears store in the mall where they were parked, he said that he saw three girls with a security guard the night they disappeared. That was all I could find on that. And so I'm like, okay, well, was it a security guard you knew if you work for the mall? Like, I'm assuming it wasn't a fellow Sears security guard. Right. And also, you know, my first job was in a mall. I don't know who works there. So it wouldn't surprise me if he, yeah, he's a security guard at the Sears. But he doesn't know who the security guard at the, I don't know, the Macy's is. Right. So, yeah. Also, again... I don't know why that was something that he waited until 2001 to say, you know, 26 years after the disappearance, but he did. Over the years, searchers have continued to search the Texas brush and basically anywhere they get any tips or have any idea to find these girls. They have searched hundreds of back roads. They've walked dry creek beds and country roads. But they have come up with nothing. And now, decades after the girl's disappearance, there have been no reports of new developments in the case. There's barely any evidence, period, to go off of. I mean, yeah, they legitimately disappeared without a trace. They did. They disappeared, and then a letter showed up a couple days later, and that's literally it. Everything else has been false leads. False leads or potential witnesses that there's not even enough information to determine if they're legitimate witnesses. Yeah. And now it's been more than 46 years since they disappeared. But that is the case of the Fort Worth missing trio. And I highly, highly suggest that y'all go to www.missingtrio.com because it's the website that Rachel's brother, I think is the one who runs it. His name is like at the bottom of the website but it goes into a lot of mo- a lot more detail on the case and everything. It's clearly a website that was made like late 90s early 2000s and I don't I mean the last like news update I saw on it is something they'd uploaded in 2004 a, a song recorded for the 28th anniversary almost 20 years ago. You told me your case was going to be intense, and you did not lead me astray. No, no. It just, this case is rough. Because I I keep thinking, like, these girls should be grandmothers by now. I know. Uh, But yeah. Um, But their family is, they're still looking. There's, you know, different links if you have any information. There's descriptions about what the girls looked like. Um, But yeah. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for directing this episode and bringing this topic to us. This was very intense. And like we said earlier, it's so hard to talk about these cases where someone has disappeared and there's so little information. But we do want to be sure and highlight these victims because maybe 
You never know. One of you guys out there listening, maybe you're that missing link. Maybe you have some information. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, like unsolved mysteries, how many cases have been solved? And also, when doing initial research for this topic, I started at the Unsolved Mysteries website and their wiki. Um, And that's not where I found this case. But one of the things that they have on each of their case pages are any updates. And it was just so heartening to see how many had been solved because of the episode airing. Yeah. Like, from what I was looking, just a casual guesstimate, it would be like half. And so things like this, I mean, really do have an impact and stuff. But yeah, I I hope that in your case, Jessica is alive out there. And there is some explanation of what happened and why she disappeared. I hope that Rachel, Renee, and Julianne are also alive. And there's an explanation. I do too. If you liked this episode, if you like listening to us every single week, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you thought. Give us those five stars. We love reading your reviews. And thank you so much to everyone who has submitted one recently. We see you guys and we love you. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check us out. Also, check out our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. Check out the merch store. Check out all the things. Time to get your tote. Get your tote for spring. I love our tote. It's my favorite thing we have. Oh, same. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.